To begin our study tonight in Second Peter chapter 2, I would like to request uh, prayers for good friend and brother in Christ, Leroy Dedman. We've been announcing that Leroy has had uh, multiple health issues, a Meniere's disease. He's been diagnosed with Meniere's, but he has diabetes. He's had heart problems, I understand, in the past. But Leroy's problems have, um, have worsened to the point that I got a e- uh, text message from him just a little while ago, and it was a sad day for him. His letter of resignation was read this morning at Ultawa, and he will no longer be able to serve as the preacher there. He's had to move out of their home place, his mother and daddy's place that they had remodeled and added on to, and he is now in Buchanan, Georgia, living with his daughter in Buchanan, and they're getting a house ready next door to her. And it was a very sad day uh, for Leroy, as you can well imagine. I just really hurt for him as I read that text message. I hated it so badly. Uh, I was glad that he did write me back, and uh, after I had expressed my concerns and assured him of our prayers, and he uh, wrote back and said, I'll, I'll come up sometime and do the uh, living, uh, leaving a legacy segments, but it'll be a while. So I wrote back and said, I'm glad to hear that because we sure would hate to lose you on the program. But uh, hopefully he will be able to do that for us, but it will be a while uh, before he'll be able to do that. So Leroy's had a, a difficult day. He said, uh, I, as though I knew that letter was being read, I was very emotionally upset, and then text messages started to come in, he said. And so let's, let's remember Leroy and Jane uh, in, our, in our prayers as... He undergoes a transition that he had not wanted to undergo at this point in his life, but as he said in his text, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and, and get it done and uh, do what you have to do, in effect. So let's remember uh, our good brother Leroy Dedman. Very faithful gospel preacher. He's done good works everywhere he's been and with the Gospel Broadcasting Network, and, and he's been a volunteer for us in not only in doing the program segment for Good News Today, but in trying to raise funds for the program as well. He's volunteered his time to do that as well. So Leroy's a good man. Jane's a good woman and certainly a great help me to him. So let's, uh, let's keep them uh, in our prayers. We're looking at Second uh, Peter chapter 2 uh, in our expository series of lessons in Second Peter. And we had touched on verse... Uh, uh, nine, as we closed uh, last time, after uh, the Apostle Peter had um, uh, had used illustrations of of God's uh, judgment upon uh, or punishment upon various groups, the angels who sinned, verse four, uh, the ancient world uh, in Noah's time, verse five, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse six, uh, demonstrating that that God does not let sin go unpunished. But in verse 7 we noted that he delivered Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So he reminds us that uh, indeed God, uh, God's justice is going to be served, but God's mercy is also seen in that uh, he does not lose sight of those who are Righteous, And that brings us then to verse uh, 9, which we touched on last time in closing. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. After just citing Lot 
and the deliverance of Lot from among that wicked uh, uh, environment in which he uh, dwelled and, and vexed his righteous soul or tormented his soul by seeing their lawless deeds. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And that word uh, temptations, as we noted, is the same word that is used um, in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6 where Peter wrote then in his first epistle, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. It is a word that can involve trials or difficulties, but also temptations in regard to temptation to sin. But God, if we will avail ourselves of those avenues of escape, we can be delivered because God has provided uh, that way. And also, as we noted last time, to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And we noted that that phrase, to reserve the unjust under punishment, indicates very clearly that they are being punished now. That those who are in what we believe to be uh, Tartarus, mentioned back in Second Peter 2 and verse 4, as he mentions the angels that were cast down to hell, as the New King James says, or, and the King James, but the word literally is Tartarus, the only time it is used in the New Testament. And as we look at Luke 16, 19 through 31, and we see those two areas of Hades, the realm of departed spirits, one being paradise, into which Jesus' spirit went, and Tartarus, the other area where the unrighteous await the final judgment. We believe indeed that this is what is uh, involved here when he talks about the unjust being under punishment even now. As they await the day of judgment, they are under punishment even now, we conclude, in Tartarus. That is, that compartment of the Hadean realm where the unrighteous spirits are even now being punished, awaiting the final judgment. Well, it's been mentioned that some would say, well, if indeed they're being punished now, uh, what is the point of, of judgment? Well, the judgment, the judgment will not be a time in which guilt is going to be determined. God obviously knows those who are guilty and those who are not guilty. And that uh, certainly uh, is determined and sealed at the time that one dies. And therefore, one's spirit goes into either uh, Tartarus or into paradise, the two uh, compartments of, of Hades. But the judgment scene will be a pronouncing of the sentence and the finality of the pronouncing of that sentence upon those who are Unjust. I was thinking about this and I thought about an analogy that I believe is valid and that is the, the court system that, uh, that we now have in, in our country. And uh, you have a jury, for example, in our uh, case, or a judge, but a lot of times a jury that determines either the innocence or the guilt of the one who is on trial. And the jury deliberates after the trial has concluded. The jury comes back and gives the verdict, either guilty or not guilty. But then there's the sentencing phase of the trial. After the guilt has been determined, if the verdict is guilty, then there is the sentencing phase. And there is testimony that is given, character witnesses, etc., pleas that are made for uh, mercy from the judge in sentencing either to a lighter sentence or to a heavier sentence. Well, I believe that's a valid analogy as we can see from the standpoint of Tartarus, the place where unrighteous spirits are now being punished, as this verse, verse 9, the latter part of it clearly indicates. There's the, the situation there where they're under punishment. Their guilt certainly has been determined. There's no question about that. And so the judgment day is not going to be a day upon which God determines whether they're guilty or innocent. That's already been determined. 
but it will be a final pronouncement of the sentence against them. The finality of that judgment will be seen, and obviously they will fully understand that finality of it as they then pass from Tartarus into Gehenna, that is, eternal uh, punishment in hell, the word Gehenna itself, differing from the place uh, known as Tartarus. But they are reserved now under punishment that is even now being punished for the ultimate day when that sentence will be pronounced. Then he says in verse 10, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Chiefly, as uh, some translation put it, uh, especially those who walk according uh, to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. In other words, um, if God is going to judge all sinners, and he is, but think about especially those who are walking according to the flesh and lusting in uncleanness and who despise authority. He is describing now some of these uh, false teachers to whom we have been introduced back in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. He further describes them here in verse 10 as presumptuous, as self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. The dignitaries here are not uh, clearly identified. Uh, some have reasoned that it's uh, angels, since angels are next mentioned in, uh, in verse uh, 11. But it may very well be uh, dignitaries of any kind from the standpoint of authority of any kind. In other words, they have no respect. Those whom Peter describes here have no respect for authority of any kind. They rebel, rebel against every uh, manifestation of authority, and they disdain authority. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it for as long as they want to do it and for uh, as much as they want to be involved in it. But he compares that attitude or contrasts that attitude in verse 11 with angels, where he says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might, that is greater in power and might than these false teachers certainly, they do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, there are many similarities in this section of Second uh, Peter especially and the one-chapter book of Jude. And um, there is an example of uh, what Peter writes about here over in Jude, verse 9. Notice there, Jude, as he is describing some of these false teachers in much the same language that Peter uh, uses, both being inspired, obviously. In verse 9, here he talks about, in verse 8, the dreamers who, who defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Well, that's very similar to what we're looking at here in 2 Peter 2. In verse 11, but in verse 9 of Jude, he says, Yet Michael the archangel... In contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. In other words, what he's contrasting here is the more modest speech and the more modest approach, even of those who are higher and mightier in power than these false teachers, meaning angels themselves, they themselves do not rail against these dignitaries. Even Michael the archangel, in disputing with the devil himself about the body of Moses, did not bring that railing accusation, but said, I'll leave it in the Lord's hands. And uh, it is reminiscent of what the Bible teaches us, that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. But simply Peter and Jude as well both use uh, similar language in contrasting the attitude of the angels with the attitude of these false teachers who are self-willed, presumptuous, uh, who are walking in uncleanness, despising authority, and they have no compunction whatsoever against speaking evil of dignitaries 
heavenly dignitaries if they're under consideration as well as earthly uh, dignitaries. But angels uh, don't even do that. They're more temperate, in other words, in their approach than these um, false teachers. But then in verse 12 then, he says, But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, he doesn't mince words here. He basically calls them animals, doesn't he? He's saying they are really like animals. They have lowered themselves by their activity to the level of being like the brute beasts that are made to be captured and, and eaten for food. They are, they are really no higher based upon their activity. They still have that eternal spirit within them, obviously, but they have lowered themselves and defiled themselves to the point that they are like the natural brute beast who are just living according to uh, the flesh, the law of survival of the fittest, uh, eat or be eaten, that kind of attitude. And notice this, they speak evil of the things they do not understand. You know, that simply reminds us that we live in a world where we have far too many people who are characterized in that same way or could be characterized in that same way. They will speak evil of this book in ways that will uh, cause the hair on the back of your head to stand up, say things about the Bible, about the God of heaven, about spiritual things that, uh, that are blasphemous uh, beyond description. And yet they've never taken the time to fully investigate and to fully understand that which they rail against. They basically do not understand what they are speaking evil of. And that was characteristic of these, uh, of these teachers. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption, verse 13, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Reminds us of Romans 6, 23. Well, the wages of sin, what? Death. Free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin pays, doesn't it? <laughs> sin pays, but not in, uh, not in a good way. No, you, you receive the wages of sin, but the wages of sin amounts to death. That is spiritual death, eternal separation from God. And notice something else of them, about them. As those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. What's he saying? Carousing in the daytime. They do not blush. They have no problem whatsoever with just being very open and above board in broad daylight, they will carouse and carry on, whereas most people will hide their evil deeds and their carousings in the night. That's when you see more of that kind of activity. Not these people, not those whom Peter describes. They are perfectly comfortable carousing from daylight well into dark, in other words. What a description. And then, he says, they are spots and blemishes. You know, contrast that to the lamb who is without spot and blemish. And contrast that to the church that these false teachers were seeking to destroy. The church that is to be ultimately presented to God by Christ without spot, without blemish. That's the whole purpose of our existence here on earth is to present ourselves as the church ultimately through Christ to the God of heaven without blemish and without spot. And yet these false teachers were spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Again, go back to Jude. 
Look at Jude 12. See the similarity in the language that Jude uses in describing false teachers that Peter uses here. In Jude verse 12, Jude writes, These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. And then he goes on to talk about some things that, we'll, that Peter will talk about that we will come to in just a moment. But while they feast with you, they're your love feasts. This would be basically the love feast that the New Testament Christians were involved in, basically equivalent to our, what we call our fellowship meals at times, our potlucks, our get-togethers where we enjoy uh, fellowship with one another, where we encourage one another, where we enjoy being together. The New Testament Christians also engaged in those common meals together and took food together and uh, encouraged one another. Well, these false teachers were mingling in with them and using those occasions to deceive and to uh, lead astray all uh, whom they could lead astray. So they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Now look at verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, eyes full of adultery. That is a, a very graphic description of the kind of lasciviousness that characterized these, um, these men uh, here, if, uh, if we're talking about men who were these false uh, teachers, and certainly that would uh, be the indication as false uh, teachers, as teachers, those who were purported leaders in the, in the church, these were uh, those who, who had eyes full of adultery. And it's interesting that the word adultery there uh, is really literally adulteresses, feminine having eyes full of adulteresses, which would basically say this, every woman they saw, they saw an adulteress in her. In other words, they pictured her as being an adulteress and being involved potentially with them in that kind of activity. Think about that. Here were those who purported to be uh, members of the Lord's body, those who we will see in just a moment once had a full knowledge of Christ. And that's exactly what's coming in the latter part of this chapter. These were those who had not just a basic understanding of the Word of God, they had a full understanding. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But when they saw a woman, they saw a potential adulteries because that's how they looked upon women. Eyes. Full of adultery. Well, that tells us something about our eyes too, doesn't it? And that our eyes can indeed uh, lead us into a great deal of trouble. Uh, Jesus said it'd be better to pluck out your eyes, uh, didn't he? Rather than to have them cause your whole body to be cast into hell. But it also brings to mind something that the Lord said in uh, Matthew chapter 5 as a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said there in Matthew 5, 27 and 28? Let's go back and look at those. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It is then that he next says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, Jesus was not saying 
that we should literally uh, pluck our eyes out. But what he's saying is, get rid of anything and everything that would keep your immortal, eternal soul from spending eternity in heaven and winding up in hell. And yet, we're reading about men here who had eyes full of adultery and could not cease from sin. They had just become so habitually involved in that mindset that when they looked upon a woman, they looked upon her as a potential adulteress. But there's another side, too, that we need to appreciate, and just to simply mention it in passing is that women do not need to adorn themselves in any way that would invite or encourage that kind of uh, eyesight, if you will, or that kind of eyeing of them. And so it's a two-way street. It's a two-way street. But I have a very, very, uh, very good idea here that it wouldn't matter what a woman had on or didn't have on with these people, that they're going to see her that way anyway. That's what Peter is saying. But that's not to say uh, that women don't need to be responsible and aware of how they adorn themselves so as not to encourage men to look at them in the wrong way. But uh, these were men with eyes full of adultery, uh, Regardless is the indication here. Cannot cease from sin. Look at this. Enticing unstable souls. And that word enticing is a word that literally carries the idea of bait. Peter was a fisherman. Peter would have known about bait, wouldn't he? And that's exactly what they were doing in these love feasts as they mingled with the, with the Christians. They were, they were enticing them and trying to get them to uh, take the bait. And notice this further in verse 14. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. Trained in covetous practices. You know, the word there indicates like you go into a gymnasium and train, like an athletic training course, like an athlete who gives himself wholly to training physically so that he can be fit and ready. In this case, they were trained in covetous practices. They were well-schooled in how to do wrong. What a description. What a description. And our accursed children. Well, he goes on, they have forsaken, verse 15, the right way and gone astray. Stop right there. They have forsaken what? The right way. What's implied there? Well, what's stated there? It's not implied. It's explicitly stated. There is a right way. Why is it important to even emphasize that? Because in the world in which we live tonight, a great many people are saying there is no right way. There are right ways, and you choose any number of right ways, whatever you think is right for you. If that's right for you, it's right. And that's the dominant thinking among a great many people. Even those who claim to be highly religious Pluralism, as we have often said, has gone to seed in this nation. Peter says there is the right way, and these false teachers had forsaken that right way and had gone astray. And then he mentions following the way of Balaam. You remember Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. If we go back to Numbers chapter 22... Beginning there in verse 1, we read about Balaam. Remember, Balak, the king of Moab, sent to Balaam, the prophet of God, and wanted him to come and curse 
Israel because they were fearful of Israel because of their uh, conquering of the land and they were concerned about their own welfare and they wanted somebody to curse these people so that they would be safe from them. And Balaam wanted to do it. He really wanted to do it when he was offered the wages of unrighteousness. And obviously, uh, time doesn't permit us to go into detail in terms of that uh, account. But you remember that he came to God and God told him not to go. But then when he was offered more uh, materialistic uh, reward, he came back to God again. The first answer should have been enough. When God says no, God means no. If he changes his mind, he'll let us know. Uh, in that case, he would have let him know, wouldn't he? God ultimately let him go, seeing obviously that he was determined to anyway, but said, you'll speak only the words which I tell you. And then on the way, what happened? What happened? Well, on the way, Peter tells us here what happened. But he was rebuked, verse 16, for his iniquity. A dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, restrained the madness of the prophet. You remember what happened? As the donkey upon which he was riding, the angel was in the way. The donkey saw the angel and, and uh, veered, and uh, uh, Balaam didn't see it and uh, didn't see the angel and wondered what in the world was happening with the donkey and was beating the donkey, and the donkey rebuked him. Well, some, some modernistic scholars try to tell us that that never happened that way, that basically that's not the account, that what happened was that what Balaam heard was really the pangs of conscience because he was going against his conscience and he was hearing the voice of his conscience. Well, Peter says he heard the voice of the donkey. And Peter endorses that Old Testament account and therefore gives absolute credence to the miraculous nature of that event. The donkey spoke. The donkey spoke. And he was rebuked for his iniquity. Later we'll see that uh, he taught... He taught uh, Balak how to, uh, how to uh, overthrow the people uh, there with uh, the fornication in which they were enticed to uh, become engaged. And uh, many of them died as a result of that, Numbers chapter 25, uh, and ultimately Balaam himself, Numbers 31, uh, was killed. And so he paid the ultimate price. But here... Peter uses him as an example. And then in verses 17 through 19, again back to these false teachers, these are wells without water, clouds carried by the tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Now again, go back to, uh, to the book of Jude and see the similarity uh, between uh, uh, what Peter writes and what uh, Jude uh, writes. Again, latter part of verse 12, we read the first part of it earlier. Latter part of verse 12 of Jude, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, thrice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars. He uses some other illustrations, but he includes the uh, uh, clouds without water, which Peter uses here uh, as well. Clouds, or, or wells without water, rather, and clouds carried by the tempest. Uh, you want a well that has water in it. If you go to a spring 
for example, from which you have gotten water before, and you're very thirsty now, and you go back to that spring, and it's as dry as a bone, you're not a happy person about that. And so you expect to be able to drink from that spring. But no, not from these false teachers. They're wells, supposedly, where there's something that is of sustenance spiritually, but there's nothing there, nothing at all. Clouds carried by a tempest. In other words, here's a farmer who's experienced a drought, and he looks up and he sees these clouds, and there's hope. Maybe it's going to rain, and whew, the wind carries them right on by, and they never, never spill a drop of rain. That's the analogy that Peter uses to describe these false teachers. Oh, yes, they speak great swelling words, but they are words of emptiness. And they allure through the lust of the flesh. What does he mean? They tell their hearers, look, you have, you've actually escaped, he says here. Here's the ones they're alluring. There's the ones who have actually escaped. Some translations read barely escaped just escaped, that would indicate they were new converts. So they had just escaped the, uh, those, from those who were living in error. They had come away from that error, and here were those in the church, supposedly, who were telling them, in effect, why did you give up that kind of lifestyle? You didn't have to give up the pleasures of the flesh. You can, you can do that and still be a faithful child of God. That's exactly what they were telling them. The lust of the flesh are still yours, and you can still be a faithful child of God and engage in that lustful activity. You can have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Through lewdness, they are influencing the ones who have what? Actually escaped from those who live in error. And in they, as they do that, they promise them what? Liberty. They're really giving them a license to sin, but they call it liberty. But it's ironic, Peter says, in effect, that they do it because they themselves are slaves of corruption. They claim to be free, free to do whatever they want to do, but in making that claim, they are actually slaves to what? Sin. Slaves to sin. That's what Jesus said in John 8, verse 34, that those who are involved in sin or committing sin, that is, keep on uh, committing sin or live a life of sin, in effect, they're the slaves of sin. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You keep on living in sin, you are sin's slave. And yet they were claiming, oh, you can be free. Ironic. They were really in slavery. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And then we're to the final two, uh, three verses of, of chapter 2, where we'll conclude. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, and the they points back to the false teachers, it would involve everybody, of course, who's ever escaped the pollutions of the world by becoming Christians. But if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge, and again, here's something we alluded to earlier, that word knowledge is not the common word knowledge for knowledge, gnosis, but it's epinosis. It is full knowledge. It is the word that is used for more accurate and precise knowledge. In other words, these are those who had reached a level where they had a more precise, full knowledge 
of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They had reached that point. They had grown to that point. They had matured to that point. And yet they what? Are again entangled and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. You know, I couldn't help but think as I was looking at this passage, I couldn't help but think of gospel preachers. Gospel preachers who have preached the truth for years, who have trained in schools of preaching or Christian colleges or other places to, to preach the gospel of Christ and who preached it for years, preached it for years, who then became involved in immorality, who became entangled again and polluted by the things of the world. That's exactly the kind of person being described here. Those who had gained full knowledge of Christ, those who were mature in their knowledge, nonetheless they succumbed to the temptations of the flesh and turned their back on Christ, even after gaining that kind of knowledge. Well, why is the latter end worse than the beginning? Well, not just greater punishment, but you think it's going to be as easy to get someone who has reached that level of knowledge and who has turned his back on it and gone back into the world, is it going to be as easy to turn that person back to Christ as it is to convert someone out here in the world initially? It's not going to be as easy. It's going to be much more difficult to bring them to repentance because of where they were and what they were willing to turn their back upon. And the possibilities of their coming back are minuscule, indeed, compared to someone just out here in the world who has never become a child of God. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then Peter goes back to the wise man Solomon's statement in Proverbs 26, 11. When he says, but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. That's Proverbs 26, 11. And a fool returns to his folly is the rest of that verse. And then he adds, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You know, some who claim that you can't fall from grace say, well, look here. Uh, this, this doesn't prove. Second Peter 2, 20 through 22 don't prove that you can fall from grace because that hog was still a hog. And that dog was still a dog. They didn't change from being a dog to something else or from a hog to something else. Well, that's a dodge that just won't work. I mean, that's not Peter's point. The point is, they what? That hog cleaned up. He was clean. He was cleansed. That dog had turned his back and gotten rid of the foul stuff and then turned back to it. That's his point. And clearly, he is using it to demonstrate the real possibility of our being able to turn our backs upon the holy commandment once delivered, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a description. What a description of these who had every opportunity to do so much good and who had learned so much and had grown so much in their knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and yet they themselves succumbed to the world. What does it tell us? It tells us that we certainly need to be applying ourselves to this book, 
to these opportunities to be together, to encourage one another, and to build one another up in the, in the faith because the devil is out here working overtime. And even with those who have been Christians for a long time, he will not give up. He may leave for a season, and we can certainly resist him, and he'll flee from us. But that's no assurance that he won't be back. And we've got to make sure we're ready for him when he returns. After the Lord was tempted in the wilderness, Luke's account of that temptation says, the devil departed from him for a season. The Lord had to deal with the devil all during his earthly ministry. He did it successfully. And through him, we can also be successful. But that's the key, through him and in him. And if you're not in him tonight, we plead with you to be baptized into him based upon a belief that will lead you to repent, confess Jesus as the Christ, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you need to come home to your first love as one who has escaped the pollutions of the world but turned one's back upon the holy commandment once delivered, we plead with you to come home if that's your need tonight as we stand to sing to encourage you.